So good afternoon, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here again. I really don't often have the opportunity to be together with the Lunch and Learn, but the rare times throughout the year that I do have the chance, I'm grateful, and I thank Alan for putting it together, and Rabbi Axelrod for allowing me to have the opportunity to learn together. I see since I was here last, they have new chairs, right? And we have some new faces, so... I don't think we ever met, but welcome to all the new faces who are here. We have and it's a with the uh-huh. <laughs> It's a pleasure. Uh, I was asked to dedicate today's Divrei Torah, Le'ilu Nishmas Moshe Ben Eliezer, whose yard site is this evening and tomorrow, and we hope that he will have an aliyah sanashama from all that we will talk about today. Um, what I wanted to discuss today, Bershutchem, uh, is to talk about something that comes up in this week's Parsha. I'm going to try to speak louder. Um, if you can't hear me, there are seats closer up if you'd like. Um, but something that I wanted to focus on was something that we encounter all the time, something that we're engaged with all the time. It happens to stem from this week's Parsha. And I just think it's a good opportunity as a launching pad to talk about the general topic um, in, uh, in how it impacts our lives all the time. In this week's Parsha, we have many, many different aspects of the Parsha that are discussed. A lot of different things that are going on. And you'll find that many of the Parshios and Sefer Dvarim are very dense. It's because it's Moshe Rabbeinu's last moments on this earth, and he feels as if he needs to get out whatever he can before it's too late. And it's his obligation as the leader of the people to try to inspire and to try to give over messages and to try to impart whatever he can to the next generation before he moves on. So Moshe Rabbeinu, in this week's parsha, gives us a very interesting mitzvah. We're all sitting down to have a beautiful lunch today. We're all sitting down. Many of us are going to wash, I hope. And some of us maybe have a little washophobia and we're a little nervous about doing that. But we often are confronted with the opportunity to do this mitzvah of which means to engage in the act of birchas hamazon after we have eaten bread. The question is, what is this supposed to make us think? What is this supposed to make us feel? And I think it's obvious that when we engage in the mitzvah of birchas hamazon, it gives us a chance to remember how grateful we need to be to the Ribbon Shalom, to God Himself, not only for the food that He gives us, but also for the opportunities that we have throughout our experience of life. Just by way of introduction, my father has pointed out many times, isn't it strange that we have all kinds of different items that we eat? And the only one that the Torah says we have an obligation to make a berchas hamazonan is bread. What is so unique and special about bread? Why is, une- why is bread so special? You'll say, bread is a staple. After all, milk is also a staple. And so are many other items in life. So why is it that bread is considered to be so uniquely significant that we say when it comes to bread, we have to say a birchas hamazon, we have to particularly go out of our way and thank the Ribbon Shalom, thank God, whereas by any other pleasure that we have, we don't find this obligation. My father often quotes from Rav Salavetrik a beautiful insight. And he explains with the following, I'm going to give an introduction to the introduction. He, uh, he explains with the following, if you just back up a step for a moment. The Jewish people are in Mitzrayim for many, many years. They're suffering, they're enslaved in Egypt, terrible things are happening, and suddenly after many years, many decades of them being there, of this horrific oppression, suddenly everything turns. Moshe Rabbeinu shows up, and everything gets great. What happens then? They don't go free right away. 
They have the experience of the makos. We sometimes get the mistaken impression that when we go through Leil HaSeder on Pesach night and we talk about Dam and Svardea and everything else and we explain exactly what happened when the Jews came out of Mitzrayim, we get the impression like everything happened in one night. But the truth is, that is not what happened. It was not one night. It was not one week. The Medrash tells us each one of the Makos was one month long. So this was a very elongated process that started with Moshe Rabbeinu coming, negotiating with Paro, and it evolved into many different iterations of how God saved the Jewish people from Mitzrayim. So here you are, and you're one of the Jews in Egypt, and you're experiencing the first Makkah of Dam. And it's amazing, and you can't believe what you're seeing. It looks almost like it can't be true. Only to be eclipsed the next month by Tzvardeya, and then Kinim and Arov. And did you notice that at no point throughout the entire duration of this experience does anybody even consider standing up and saying thank you to God for saving them, for this incredible miracle? Nobody says thank you. Now you'll say, it's not the appropriate time to thank God because after all, we're still enslaved. We're not out of this country yet. Who knows when this is going to turn on us? What happens next? After all of these makos, then we have makos b'choros. The Jewish people are told, you're going free. They leave the land of Egypt. Now they are free. Nobody thinks to thank God. Correct? Nobody thanks God. When do they decide to thank God? When does that happen? A week later, when they're stuck by the ocean, and they don't know which way to go, and suddenly everyone starts crying, and God says, Ma titzak Eli, why are you crying to me? And Moshe Rabbeinu says, what else should we do? God says, Daberel b'nei Yisrael v'yiso. Why don't you just talk to the people and let them start walking? And Moshe Rabbeinu says, start walking? There's an ocean here. There's a river. There's water. We can't walk. God says, just start. Just go. Move forward and the miracle will happen that way. And that is exactly what happens. Immediately upon that experience, they react and they respond by saying, Az Yashir Moshe Yisrael. It's a part of our davening every day. You ever wonder, maybe you've never thought about it, but I hope in the future, now that you hear this, you should think about it. Ever wonder... How come nobody considered praising God, thanking God, recognizing His miracle all that time? All the miracles were going on in Mitzrayim. They finally were set free. Seven days later, they're stuck by the ocean. And suddenly, wow, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu turns around and says, it would be the appropriate thing to maybe thank God for the experience that we're having. Where have you been? Why haven't you thanked Him until now? And Rav Soloveitchik explained the answer is there's one major marked distinction between what happened up until that point, and this was now a turning point in Jewish history once they went through the Yamsif. What was the difference? Until that point, HaKadosh Baruch Hu God said, malach, ashaliach, I'm going to do everything myself. God didn't need any emissaries. Again, Moshe Rabbeinu was intervening, he was negotiating, but in the end of the day, all of this was miraculous. Comes to the Jewish people getting stuck on the on the riverbed, and they don't know where to go. What does any good Jew do when they're stuck? You cry out to God. What else are you going to do? What option do you have? I'm stuck. They all start crying, and God says, why are you crying to me? Moshe Rabbeinu should have responded, this is what every good Jew does whenever they're stuck. What else are we supposed to do? And God says, you're misunderstanding. Now you're a free people. Until now, I made history unfold. I made all the miracles happen as they were going on. I made them happen. 
But now it's your chance to partner and hold God's hand and allow yourselves to make the miracle happen. I'm going to help you, but I'm empowering you to allow you to feel that you made this miracle happen. Is there a greater moment in our life experience than that moment when we have the opportunity to hold the hand of God, to partner together with Him, to know that He entrusts us to do something meaningful, to know that He believes in us, that it's not just me relying on Him, but it's Him relying on me to make the next chapter of Jewish history happen? It's at that moment Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm so overwhelmed. There's nothing I feel more grateful for than this. And he immediately responds, Az Yashir Moshe of Yisrael. Come back to the story of why do we have to thank God when we make bread? Rabbi Salavechik explained there's one very big difference between an apple or an orange that grows on a tree and the bread that we create. You see, an apple and orange grows naturally. And we enjoy it, and it's beautiful, but it's all God's gifts. It's all miraculous. Does it make sense? When I put a little pit in the ground, it starts disintegrating, and then from there will grow a tree, from there will grow fruits, from there I'll be able to enjoy. It's all miraculous. What happens when I want to eat bread? I have to take something that God created. I have to process it. I have to then mix it together into a dough. I then have to bake it in the oven. I have to shape it. I have to do everything to bring this product to where I want it to be. That is the moment of a Jewish person or any individual having the opportunity to hold God's hand and say, together, we are going to be able to make something special. Is there anything more gratifying than that experience? And it's at that moment that we turn to God and we say, Thank you not only for the fact that you've sustained me, that you give me an opportunity to eat and to have pleasure in my eating and to have pleasure in all that I'm engaging in, but thank you for entrusting me to partner together with you. Thank you for enabling me to be a person who is able to accomplish, who is able to do, and not just be reliant on others, not just be reliant on you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Thank you for allowing me to hold your hand to bring this product into my life. That is the special experience that we have when we eat bread. And this is something Rav Salavechik emphasized on one occasion, but it's something that can really be relevant to a totally different discussion that he had in a, diff, in a very different context. Rav Salavechik talks about the fact, you know, now we're right after Tishabav, and we're giving a lot of focus and a lot of thought to Yerushalayim, Beis Amigdash, to Churban, and to our ultimate return to Yerushalayim. But when you think about it, Rav Salavechik points out that there are two mountains in Jewish history that have great significance. What are those two mountains that have great significance? One is... Har Sinai, that's where all of Jewish history basically began. That was the greatest moment in Jewish history. That's where God chose the Jewish people and gave them the Torah. And then, subsequently, we have the Harabayas. We know that's where Avram Avinu performs the Akedah. We know that that is where we offered Karbanos. That is where we had a Beis Amigdash. That is where we connected with God in the most profound of ways. So we have two very significant mountains. But there's a marked distinction between the two. The Torah says in Parashas Yisro that while God was there giving us the Torah, we are told nobody's allowed to go up on the mountain. No one's allowed to enter into the gated off area. This was restricted zone. Only Moshe Rabbeinu, only select individuals, but everybody else had to stand off of the mountain. The moment that experience was over, the Torah says, Once God said that the experience of accepting the Torah is finished, 
Everybody was allowed to go on the mountain. In fact, if we were to identify where Har Sinai was today, there would be no restriction at all for any of us to go up on that mountain. There would be nothing wrong at all. Contrast that with the Harabais. The Harabais is known to be a very sacred place. And yet we say, the Ramam writes, that it's Kitsha Liyasadavo, even though we do not have a Beis HaMikdash today, even though we don't have the opportunity to offer Karbanos, even though there is no service actually going on there other than our lovely Arab neighbors who do service there every day, we still believe that it retains its status of sanctity. We still believe that it is Kitsha Liyasadavo, that it is something that retains its level of sanctity even way beyond the confines of a building, of a Beis HaMikdash, of the service, of the sacrifice, everything remains sacred. What's the difference? Why is it that Harabayas remains sacred and Harsinai is meaningless? What's the difference? Rav Salavechik said, Rav Salavechik explained, perhaps the answer is as follows. When it came to Harsinai, how was that sanctity created? Nobody did anything. God came down from heaven. He designated this mountain to be the place where the event was going to happen. He cordoned off the area and said, no one's allowed to move forward beyond the place where we have told you to go. And God left. After it was over, the event is over, and it goes back to being what it was. But what infused the Harabayas? What infused that sacred place with its sanctity? What infused it with its sanctity was originally that Avram Avinu was willing to give of himself, to invest of himself in his relationship with God. He went to perform the Arkadah on Har Sinai, on Har Maria, I'm sorry, on Har Maria, on Har Abayis, and that is what gave the original infusion of sanctity. And from that time and on, Jews have been sacrificing themselves to bring the sanctity to the Har Abayis. It is not something that was created by the Rebona Shalom. It's something that we invested in. It's something that we, together with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, have created. And as a result of that, says of Salavechik, something that we invest in, something that we create, has eternal and everlasting sanctity to it. That will never wane, that will never fade, that is something that is of everlasting nature. Because we made it happen. When you think about the Gemara tells us that on Yom Tif and on Shabbos, we have this concept, I'm sure many of us have heard of it, of a Neshama Yaseira. We have some kind of extra special Neshama on Shabbos. What exactly it means, I don't know. Rashi surprisingly writes in Mesechah's Beitzah, Neshama Yaseira doesn't mean what you think. It's not so spiritual. Neshama Yaseira just means we have extra room inside of ourselves to consume more food. Sometimes we feel that way. But that's not the general understanding of what the Neshama Yaseira is. The general assumption is Neshama Yaseira is something beyond the physical reality that we experience. It's something extra special. It's an extra sanctity that we get on Shabbos. Okay, how do we mark the fact that the Neshama Yaseira leaves us after Shabbos is over? What do we do to highlight the fact that we no longer have a Neshama Yaseira once Shabbos leaves? What do we do? Anybody knows? Which part of Havdalah? We smell the summit. Why do we smell the summit after Shabbos? The Gemara says the reason why is because the body is in so much pain and agony that it lost its extra special neshama, so we have to do something to appease ourselves for that loss that we experience. So what do we do? We smell the summit, makes us feel good, puts us in a good mood, that's what we do. 
Now I ask you, you make Havdalah after Shabbos is over, and you also make Havdalah after Yom Tov is over. Is there a difference between the Havdalah after Shabbos and the Havdalah after Yom Tov? There's no spices, there's no besamim. So why is that? If we have the spices, if we have the besamim after Shabbos, because we lost our Neshama Yisera, then why is it that we don't also have the spices after Yom Tif when we lose the Neshama Yisera? Is that a good question? This is the question that is asked by the Rishonim. Rashi and the Baliatosis are all bothered with this. The medieval commentaries say it just doesn't make sense. Don't you assume we have an extra special Neshama on the holidays as well, on Yom Tif? Well, some argue... Maybe Neshama Yaseira is only reserved for Shabbos and we don't get it on Yom Tif. We all know that that's not the case. We all feel it on Yom Tif. We feel special on Yom Tif. There's something extra uniquely special. So why is it that we don't smell the Besamim after Yom Tif is over? Listen to an amazing Shemi Shmuel. I always wonder when I come here, why do I prepare? Here I prepared a whole thing. I didn't get to it yet and I'm not going to get to it. This is all just the introduction. That's not on here. Okay. Next time, it's just open mic. Any of you can, uh, can do what you want. So, so what's the difference? Listen to a Shemi Shmuel. Again, this is the question that was posed by the Rishonim. The Shemi Shmuel gives an answer. He was hundreds of years after the Rishonim passed away. He lived in the early 1900s, late 1800s. But he poses the following suggestion. He says, how does the neshama, the extra neshama on Shabbos come to us? Shabbos, the Gemara says, is what we refer to as Kaviyah Vakaima. Every seventh day of the week, whether you like it or not, whether you're prepared for it or not, Shabbos is going to be here. So, some people invest a lot in Shabbos. Some people invest very little in Shabbos. But whether you invest a lot or a little, Shabbos comes every week. And along with Shabbos coming every week, your extra neshama comes every week. But says the Shemi Shmuel, easy come, easy go. The neshama comes to you every Friday afternoon, it's going to leave every Matzah Shabbos. You did nothing to deserve it. However, the Gemara says, Yom Tif is very different. How do we determine when to celebrate any of the holidays during the year? The Luach. The, Luach, the calendar. How is the Luach determined? By human beings. We need to look at the moon. We need to declare that it's a new month we then have the opportunity to celebrate a holiday on one particular day or the other. But that is something that we invested. It's reflected in the tefillah. Every Shabbos, we end off our Shemona Esrei, we say in the middle, Mikadesh HaShabbos. Mikadesh HaShabbos means that God infused sanctity into Shabbos. How do we end the tefillah on Yom Tif? What do we say? Mikadesh Yisrael Vehazmanim. The Gemara picks up on that nuance. Why is it that on Shabbos we say Mekadesh HaShabbos and on Yom Tif we say Mekadesh Yisrael V'Hazmanim? Why are the Jewish people thrown into the mix? And if the Jewish people are so important to that discussion, then how come on Shabbos we don't say Mekadesh Yisrael V'Hashabbos? The answer is because the sanctity of Shabbos comes automatically. This is the day that God rested. This is God's sacred day. And whether you invest in it or not, Shabbos comes every week, whether we like it or not, whether we infuse it with sanctity, it's here every week and we get that extra neshama. Shabbos is over, it leaves us. Yom Tif, the only reason why a holiday has a very special significance is because we gave it significance. 
we determine that it is now the new month, that it is Rosh Chodesh. As a result of that, the consequence of that is going to be, we now have a Yom Tif. What gives us the ability to sanctify days? What right do you have to arbitrarily say, today is special, tomorrow is less special? The answer is, because God infused the Jewish people with sanctity, Mikadesh Yisrael, because God said, you are holy, therefore you have the ability to transfer that great degree of holiness that you have onto a day. Mikadesh Yisrael, the Hazmanim. How is it that the Zman, how is it that the day on the calendar becomes sanctified, becomes elevated? Because it is elevated by people who have sanctity. Right? It's the Shemi Shmua. If we are the ones who create the experience of Yom Tif, that means that we are the ones who create the Neshama Yaseira on Yom Tif. If that's the case, if we created it, it's something that will never leave us. It's an experience that will stay with us forever. And there's no reason for us to smell the Basamim afterward because it's there. it's there. The only reason for Basamim after Shabbos is because our extra Neshama leaves us. We didn't invest in it. But Yom Tif, we invested in, we created it. And as a result of the fact that we created it, we hold on to it even afterward. And there's no reason to smell the Basam. A number of years ago, I was in Shari Tzedek Hospital. And I was not a patient, Baruch Hashem, in Shari Tzedek Hospital. But I was visiting with a group of Rabbanim here from the United States. And we were brought on a tour of the IVF PGD lab in Shari Tzedek Hospital. It's amazing. It's amazing to see it. It's tragic whenever a couple needs to go through fertility treatments, but what a gift and what a blessing it is in our generation that we have so many different interventions that we can offer a couple to try and help them and assist them. It's costly, it's difficult, it's emotionally draining, but it's a tremendous gift and it's an unbelievable blessing that our generation has. Now, as a rabbi, you get questions all the time from couples that are struggling and different options that they have in front of them. Of course, I'm not a doctor, but we talk through the issues and you have to be aware of what the issues are, what the options are, how to help guide people when they come to speak to you. So we felt it would be beneficial for us to go see, hands-on, what the different treatment options are. We wanted them to show us in real time what it is, how it works, what exactly we're dealing with, And it was an unbelievable tour, really an amazing tour. And in the context of this, they showed us all the different instruments, all the different procedures, all the different machines. They showed us the development of an embryo. They showed us the Petri dishes, everything, just to gain a real understanding of what it is that goes into helping a couple try to bring a child into the world. Okay. At one point, there was a woman on our tour. Her name is Dr. Professor Gaona Altaresco. I assume that's a name that is not familiar to any of you here. It was unfamiliar to me as well. Very humble woman, a Polish Jewish woman who told us that her greatest um, pride in life is that she's a descendant of the Balshemtov. So a very special woman. And she now works in Shari Tzedek Hospital and runs the IVF PGD lab and has brought tens of thousands of children into the world. This woman was on the scientific team that discovered the BRCA gene. She's a brilliant scientist, an amazing person, who gave us a very scientific presentation to understand the work that she does. At some point, she turns to us, we were a group of about 10 rabbis, and she says, you know, I'm never in the presence of rabbis. I'm always in the hospital. I'm with doctors, I'm with nurses, I'm with PAs. 
So she said, would you mind if I asked a question to you? A question that's been bothering me for a long time. So we all said, sure. And she poses the following question. She says, I come to work every day, and this is my specialty. I bring children into the world to couples who otherwise would not have been able to have them without my intervention, without my team helping them, without this amazing apparatus that we have, without all the scientific breakthroughs that we're so blessed to be a part of in our generation. But she said, I feel very uncomfortable with it. I feel like I'm playing God. If God decided this couple shouldn't have children, who am I to decide that I know better than him? Maybe the couple shouldn't have children because they weren't destined to have children. Maybe they shouldn't have children because they're not going to be good parents. I don't know what God has in mind. Why would God not give someone children? Not because he hates them. There must be a good reason. And I'm deciding that I am going to be the one who's going to circumvent God's plan. I'm going to change the course of events and I'm going to make sure that as much as God doesn't want them to have it, I'm going to give it to them. Not only am I going to give it to them, anyone here familiar with what PGD actually is? IVF is something we're all familiar with. It's been around for a long time. PGD is far more recent. PGD is basically gene editing, where they can take the egg and the sperm and they can do gene editing in the Petri dish to take out any problematic genes that this child has. It can go so far, again, it's a big ethical question, how far do you go? Meaning, should we create the perfect race in the world? Should we have everybody with a certain color eyes and a certain color hair? They can do gene editing to the extreme. But that's a big ethical question in many of the hospitals. How much are they going to allow couples and families to do gene editing and decide what the child should look like? Or do we say gene editing is helpful when you have somebody, a family or a couple that has some kind of genetic disorder and now we live in a generation where we can get around that problem because we'll just do an IVF procedure and there we will, while it's in the Petri dish, we will remove any of the problematic genes that we find and then we will insert this embryo and they can give birth to a healthy child. It's an amazing, amazing breakthrough in science. But she said, when you think about it, what I'm basically saying is that I am going to be choosing what kind of child is going to be born. Not just that I'm assisting a couple to have a child, but that I'm now deciding what kind of child should be born. And she said this is a theological question that has plagued her for many, many years in her work. So she posed this question to us. And I turned to her and I said, you know, the Gemara says, Head yod kofetz barosh. The silliest person in the room opens his mouth first. So maybe I was the silliest man in the room. And everybody was sitting there stunned by her question. I think people were just inspired. It's not because we were all speechless. It was just inspiring to see a woman who has so much to show for the work that she's done and who is so scientifically accomplished and who has helped so many families really have the humility to think about such an important question. And I told her, number one, the Torah tells us, Virapo yirape, which means a doctor has a right to treat a patient. Not just a right, a doctor has an obligation to treat a patient. Reb Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva, if I'm not mistaken, where he discusses, okay, so does that mean that we all have an obligation to go to med school so that we have the opportunity to save lives? Reb Moshe says, no. If you have the training and you know how to do this, you have an obligation to use your training and expertise to help people out. But if I don't have the training and I don't know how to save lives, then okay, this is the job that is reserved for those who know how to do it. 
But if I know how to do it, I have an obligation to save lives. I can ask you the same question. If God decided this person should be sick, if God decided this person should be riddled with cancer, or this person should have this diagnosis, or this person needs some kind of treatment, or, or who are you to decide that we should go ahead with this or we shouldn't? Who are you to decide? Maybe God wants the person to be sick until they die. Why should we give chemotherapy if, after all, if God wants this person to have cancer, maybe he wants them to die from cancer, or maybe he just wants them to suffer? But yet the Torah says, Verapo Yerapeh that a doctor is supposed to use his or her medical knowledge, all of their training, all of their expertise, and use it for the betterment of the population, of the civilization. That is not going against the plan of God. That is helping further advance the plan that God had in mind. And that's what I told her for starters. But beyond that, I said, can there be a greater feeling in the world than to know that God has entrusted you to hold his hand and to make the next miracle of creation happen. God is the one who makes sure that lots of things in the world happen. God is the one who makes sure that all the trees grow outside and that we have rain and that we have sunshine and that the moon comes out every night. All the different things that we experience, God takes care of. It's rare that we are given the opportunity to hold the Rebona Shalom's hand and to do something uniquely special with him to create the next chapter of our own history and our own existence. That is a very special privilege. That is an amazing privilege. And that is something that we think about as we say, There are moments, there are experiences in our lives where God turns to us and says, I don't just want you to cry out to me. I want you to look deeply inside of yourself and think about what it is that you can do in partnering together with me to make something special come to be a reality in the world. It's not always going to be God himself that makes it happen. Sometimes he turns to us on those rare occasions and he says, Daber el b'nei Yisrael You're stuck by the Yamsuf? The Jewish people don't know where to go? The obvious answer is cry out to God and God turns to motion and he says, no, no, no. Now history is changing. From this time and onward, it is your opportunity to look inside of yourselves and see what can I do, what can I invest to make this a reality? And I'm going to create that miracle. Can there be a more satisfying feeling in the world? Can there be something that makes us feel more proud than the fact that God himself, the Melech Malchei Hamlachim, the one who runs our entire universe, who does everything in the world, believes that there's nobody else better to do something with him than me. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing blessing. That is what I think about when we come to this mitzvah. Why is it that we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu specifically when we eat bread, whereas we don't have a biblical obligation to thank him for anything else? Because there's something uniquely latent behind the message of the making of the bread. And that is, it required our investment. We took God's gifts and God's blessings and we then move forward with it. It's a very interesting medrash where the medrash writes, and I'll close in a few minutes because I want everyone to eat comfortably and to enjoy and I think you've heard enough. But um, the medrash writes a, a absolutely astounding, shocking comment. The medrash says, Shloshan is davgu al habe'er. May as well close this. Shloshan is davgu al habe'er means there are three shiduchim that happened by a well. 
Who got married by a well? Who got married by the well? Moshe met his wife by the well, correct? As we know, Moshe is a fugitive. He runs away to Midian. He's afraid for his life. He meets these young women at the well who are being abused and taken advantage of. He steps in. He takes care of them. Shidduch. He gets married by the well. Okay, great. If only it would be that simple. Right? We would all just go to the well. Rivka. Yitzchak meets Rivka also by the well. The same story. We see how wonderful she is. And who else gets married by the well? Yaakov and Rachel. We know that Yaakov is there. Same kind of story. And he sees that these wonderful young women are there. Falls in love with them. Great. Beautiful shidduch. Three shidduchim happen by the Be'er. Now I ask you. The Medrash does not tell us what happened on all the dates of the Avos and Imohos. It doesn't go through a cataloging of, uh, you know, the, the scrapbook of what exactly they did every time they got together. It doesn't say, you know, on Tuesday they went to the boardwalk, and on Wednesday they went out for dinner, and then on Thursday they played bingo, and on Friday they played mahjong. It doesn't say that. Why? Because it's not relevant. What do I care how Yaakov Avinu spent time with his wife? It's not my business. He went out with his wife. It turns out that they loved each other. It turns out that, they, that it worked. It was a compatible match. They got married. Nothing else matters. It doesn't need to tell me what Moshe Rabbeinu did together with his prospective wife because it's not relevant. So why is it relevant for me to know that Moshe Rabbeinu is by a well, that Yitzchak meets his wife also by the well, and that Yaakov Avinu meets his wife by the well as well? Why is that relevant information? Oh, halavai ve'ulai. If only. We'd be so lucky. We should be so lucky. So Rav Asher Weiss said, at my first night of Sheva Brachas, he came in for my wedding, and then he spoke the first night of Sheva Brachas. And he said the following interpretation, an amazingly brilliant insight. He said, if you look in the pages of Chumash, you will find there are three different ways that we refer to a source of water. What are the three different ways that we refer to a source of water? Sometimes we refer to a source of water as a ma'ayan. Sometimes we refer to a source of water as a bor. And sometimes as a be'er. What is the difference? A ma'ayan means a geyser or a spring. A bor means a pit. And a be'er means a well. What is the difference between these three sources of water? Here's his interpretation. A ma'ayan is something that is just naturally coming forth from the ground. I don't dig to find it. I don't have to do anything. It springs forth from the ground on its own. A bar is the opposite extreme, which is what? A bar means I dig a pit, I cement it, I make sure that it has firm foundations, and then I fill it with water. A bathtub, that's a bar. A be'er is somewhere in the middle. What's a be'er? A be'er is when I have to dig deep beneath the surface of the ground until I find a source of water that's deep beneath the surface of where I started. And that is the middle ground between the ma'ayan on one extreme and the bar on the other extreme. What is the significance? What he suggested was the following. Some people live life. You know, I sometimes talk to young men in our shul or young women, and I'm amazed. I can't say I'm so old, especially in the presence of people who have a lot more life experience than I do. But not old. Older than I am. That's all I said. 
older than, more experienced. I said that right. Thank you. So I find it fascinating how sometimes you'll talk to a young man or young woman and they have their whole lives charted out in front of them. I'm going to go to this university. I'm going to get this job when I finish. I'm going to marry this kind of girl. We're going to have this many children. We're going to send them to this kind of school. We're going to live in that kind of community. We're going to have this kind of house. And all is going to be perfect. Any of us who have lived more than a few minutes past the teenage years know that that is not true. That's just not the way life goes. We know we can have all kinds of plans. We can have all kinds of imaginations. It's just not the way it goes. The reality of life sets in. And things take turns, some in positive directions, some in less positive directions. Things happen. Things happen and they don't always go based on all of the information that I thought I had in my head that was all charted out perfectly. It doesn't always go that way. There are other people who are the opposite extreme. We have a single Shabbaton in our shul once or twice a year and there are singles who say, I don't need to go. If God wants me to get a shit off, he'll send the right boy to me. Really? Where are you going to find him? He'll come knocking at the door. What do I need to go? We have people in our community who lose their jobs. Rahman al-Islam is a terrible thing. Somebody loses a job, they're trying to support a family, they're very nervous, what are they going to do? I don't need to apply for a job. If somebody wants to hire me, they'll find me. Why why do they say such a thing? Because I'm such a firm believer in God. If God wants my family to have a parnasa, he'll send it to my doorstep like the nun. It will fall by the doorstep. Somebody's going to come, a headhunter is going to find me and say, I have the perfect job for you on a silver platter. We all know life doesn't work that way either. What is the greatest way to live life? The ma'ayan is the person who just believes that all of life is just going to spring forth out of the ground by itself. God's going to send me everything. That's not reality of life. There are people on the opposite extreme who live life like the bar. I'm going to cement it. I'm going to fill it. I'm going to do the foundations. I'm going to have everything perfectly measured exactly how I want it to be. And life doesn't work that way either. The person who is successful in life is the one who lives life like a be'er, like a well, who understands that I have to work hard and I have to invest and I have to do whatever I can to bring about the best possible result that I can bring in my own life experience. But I understand in the end that after all the digging and after all the working hard, where am I going to lead myself to? To the source of blessing that was always beneath the surface. God put blessings in all of our lives. But he understands that the only way for those to actualize themselves is if we work hard to bring them to the fore, to bring them to fruition. That is the greatest way to live life. And what the Torah is teaching us by all of the Avos experience was they're about to venture out into the most important decision of their lives, who they're going to marry, how they're going to build a family, what they're going to do. And the Torah reminds us that those critical junctures don't forget. Don't forget. It's not all going to be dependent on you. It's not your bar that you're going to dig out and you're going to cement and you're going to lay the foundations for. And it's not a mayan that's going to happen on its own. Just remember, every stage of success in your life is only going to come about from your investment, but ultimately with the recognition and the realization that whatever you invest is only to bring you to the blessings that are beneath the surface of your life that God had always put into the experience of your life. You just need to find them. And that is what the Be'er is all about. I believe it's no coincidence that as Yaakov Avinu is about to go down to Egypt with his children and his family, they make one stop. Where do they go? Be'er Sheva. Same thing. He's trying to teach them. We're going out into the world. There's going to be a lot of complication. There's going to be a lot of difficulties. But don't forget, every success story in life only comes about from people who are willing to make investments, hard decisions, 
and then find the blessing and the partnership that they have with God himself. And that's what makes life meaningful. When we realize that at every stage of every experience that we have, we always have the opportunity to hold the hand of God and to be able to accomplish things together with his blessings, together with his involvement. It doesn't happen by itself. It's an experience of Daber of B'nai Yisrael Yisrael. It's an experience of the achalta, the savata, veirachta, Hashem alokecha. That is all of life, giving us the opportunity to partner together with Him to bring about a meaningful experience for ourselves. So 